I'm Duncan Hilton. This is the Religious Life Podcast. How do you grow in faith, hope, and love, and also confront the suffering and injustice in the world? Fumi Tosu, a longtime Catholic worker and founder of one of the newest houses of hospitality, Dandelion House in Portland, Oregon, has written about what he calls the liturgy of hope that he's found in the rhythm of the life of a Catholic worker. Chop, cook, serve, then walk, pray, protest. For those who may not be familiar with the Catholic worker, Dorothy Day and Peter Marin founded the movement in 1933 at the height of the Depression in the slums of New York City. Its aim is to live in accordance with the justice and charity of Jesus Christ. Day and Marin began a house of hospitality where volunteers fed and housed the poor while also writing about and changing the political systems that created the poverty. They believed, as Day wrote, that God meant things to be much easier than we have made them. And they believed that it was the work of Christians to be God's merciful hands and prophetic tongue in the world. There are now over 200 houses of hospitality internationally. The movement is highly decentralized. There's no governing body and the movement has no formal ties to the Roman Catholic Church. Binding the communities together is their shared commitment to the aims and means of the Catholic worker movement, the values of nonviolence, works of mercy, voluntary poverty, and manual labor. I spoke with Fumi about how someone born and raised in Tokyo, Japan, ends up founding a Catholic worker community in Portland, Oregon, why he remains Roman Catholic even when he doesn't agree with all of the church's teachings, what it looks like to carry on the aims and means of the movement 90 years after its founding and in a highly secular context, and what it means to confront racism as a Christian and how it affects a Catholic worker, and what advice he has for others feeling called to start a house of hospitality. I was struck by the seeming paradoxes of Fumi's life, his thoughtful and gentle speech and his bold arrest and release for protesting his local Catholic university support of Razi. His commitment to voluntary simplicity and his freedom from worry about having enough money and his immersion in the life of poor and his faith in God's love and care. I hope that you listen to this interview and something strikes you. If you want to learn more about Fumi, get involved locally at Dandelion House or donate to their work, go to the Dandelion House website. As always, there are a number of helpful links in the podcast show notes and my Substack posts related to this conversation. You'll find a link to the Substack at my website, duncanhilton.net. You'll also find information there about how to join weekday prayer and meditation groups, which meet by phone at 5.30 and 6 Eastern time. My ministries of writing, podcasting, prison chaplaincy, and online teaching are funded by listeners and readers. If you like what you hear, please go to duncanhilton.net and click on the donate button to make a one-time or recurring donation. And now my conversation with Fumi Tosu. Welcome to the Religious Life Podcast, Fumi Tosu. I'll open us with a prayer. This is a Dorothy Day Guild's prayer. The Lord be with you. God, our creator, your servant Dorothy Day exemplified the Catholic faith by her conversion, life of prayer, and voluntary poverty. 
works of mercy, and witness to the justice and peace of the gospel. May her life inspire people to turn to Christ as their Savior and God, to see his face in the world's poor, and to raise their voices for the justice of God's kingdom. We pray that you grant the favors we ask through her intercession, so that her goodness and holiness may be more widely recognized, and one day the church may proclaim her saint. We ask for this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. When we, we've never met before just now, I know the beginning and the end of your story that you were born in Japan and that you've started a Catholic worker house or house of hospitality in Oregon. Um, I'd love to have your help filling in the, the gaps between those two points. So first, could you tell a little bit more about your childhood in Japan and maybe what the seeds were of your current vocation? Sure. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Duncan. So as you said, I was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan. I was also raised Catholic, which is a really mm -hmm. unique way both to be Japanese and to be Catholic. There just aren't very mm -hmm. many Japanese Catholics in the world. But my parents converted when I was three years old. And mm -hmm. ever since then, I've been Catholic. And I recognize now as an adult what a privilege it was to grow up Catholic in Japan, where almost nobody else is Catholic, because what that meant is that I was able to grow up hearing the stories of the Gospels, which had a profound impact on me, these beautiful stories about Jesus and justice, without a lot of the institutional baggage that the Christian church in the West carries. Mm. The institutional bag, religious institutional baggage in Japan is carried by the Buddhists and the Shintos. They're the ones that have been around for centuries, have accumulated wealth and power, and at times, along with that, corruption. Uh, and the Christian church really doesn't have a whole lot of that in Japan. So it was a really beautiful way to grow up Christian and Catholic. Mm -hmm. What were some of your favorite gospel stories or what did you love most about church? I went every week and mm. honestly, as you asked me, I, no one's asked me that question before, but the parts that come to me are just walking to church with my mom and brother and my family. And I, it was just a nice walk. Um, in my mind, it was always sunny, though, clearly that was not the case <laughs> and and i liked yeah i liked going with my family i think mm -hmm. and once i entered the sanctuary there was always this sense of oh i'm in a different place i'm in a place that's sacred and i like that too mm -hmm. at what point did you come to the states and how did that change your relationship to the church yeah so i came to the u.s for college mm -hmm. i attended college in the northeast and when i first got here i was amazed i was like suddenly there are all these other people who are my age and christian and so i was dabbling in all of the various on-campus christian groups and i really didn't have a good sense of what the range of christianity was at that mm -hmm. point and 
I didn't even really know the difference between what it meant to be Catholic and Protestant. I, I knew I was Catholic, but I didn't know the differences. And as part of that exploration, I uh, came across some campus groups that were what I would now call conservative evangelical groups. But again, I didn't know the difference. And through those groups, I had a lot of fun. I made a lot of friends. And then there came a point when some of the theology suddenly didn't make sense to me and I didn't understand what was going on. There was uh, homophobia in one of the groups and growing up Christian in Japan, I didn't even know that homophobia and Christianity were a thing that went together. Mm. And I was just totally thrown off by that and didn't like it. There was also a sense of if you're not this particular kind of Christian, then you're going to hell, which I had never encountered before. You can imagine when almost nobody in your family or school is Christian, how absurd it would be in church to say, mm -hmm. you're saved, but nobody else is. And mm -hmm. so I just never got that. And so those were some things I had to navigate. And by the time I graduated from college, I wasn't sure what I believed in anymore. But there was enough of that. The stories from childhood that were still in me that I was curious to, to give God one more chance, if you will. And mm -hmm. so as I was graduating college, I signed up for something called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Yeah. Which was a faith-based volunteer program. And essentially, I signed up for that as a dare to God. And the dare went something like, I don't know if you're for real anymore, God, mm. but if you are for real, then everything I remember hearing about you from going to mass as a kid tells me that when you spent time on earth in a human body, you spent your whole life on the margins of society. And so if I do this crazy thing called JVC and live in community with others, work in inner city Brooklyn, New York with severely emotionally disturbed children, which is what I ended up doing, then I'm going to discover something about you. Mm. And if I don't, then great. I'll wash my hands clean of this God thing and move on. And so that was really a pivotal moment in a pivotal year for me when needless to say I made the stare to God and I did discover something of God during that year mm. can you share more about what you discovered yeah it wasn't the grandeur of God or the awesomeness of God or even the love of God or anything big like that it didn't hit me in the face like that. It was, if anything, as I worked in these, I, I, as I worked in a school with children who were facing such odds, you know, I, and I was working with kids who had emotional trauma, childhood trauma they were working through and acting out at school. This was a special ed program for emotion disturbed children. It's impossible not to fall in love with kids, I think. 
And so as I fell in love with these kids who were hurting, I began to hurt too. And, and their pain became my pain. And somehow within all of that, I began to get a glimpse maybe of the heartbreak of God or somehow within this sense of injustice, I also felt this sense that God wanted something different also. Going back to something you said earlier, um, my first job in the Episcopal Church was to be on staff at the Episcopal Service Corps, which was oh, cool. modeled after the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. We had an intentional community and people were placed at different sites. I know um, for those young people, like um, so many folks are drawn to the Episcopal Church because of its like openness around sexuality. And I heard you say being turned off around the evangelical church and homophobia. And I think many of my listeners would think, doesn't the Catholic church have that? What's your experience been with that? And how did it feel different than in the evangelical community? Yeah, I actually found in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and the parishes that I, Catholic parishes that I've attended that year and since, that there's been an incredible openness to the LGBTQ community. Certainly there are ecclesial limits uh, mm. placed in terms of marriage, for example. But all the parishes I went to had plenty of gay couples who were married outside of the church, and it was painful for them that they couldn't get married in the church. But they were active members of these congregations, receiving communion. There was never any sense that that folks should be excluded because of their sexuality. Mm -hmm. So I think what I found in the Catholic Church is that there's this huge range. It was such a huge church. Right. And, and I think the uh, bishops and parishes that sometimes get a lot of attention are the ones that are very conservative on this score and mm. want to the people who want to create a smaller pure church that hues to you know that toes the party line on all of these things but my experience has been there's actually tons of clergy laypersons communities parishes that live their catholic faith in much more open ways mm. Thank you for clarifying that. My memory from reading some of your work online, you then worked for the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. I did. At the point, and then you taught at a Jesuit school. Is that right? A middle school? That's right. And then there was a point at which you chose something wasn't right about teaching, or you did it for seven years, I think. And then you decided to go on a pilgrimage and visit all these different Catholic worker homes. Wow, you did your research. I don't know where. Yeah, I well, I, me and Google, watch out what's out there. <laughs> it was all good. But I'm curious, there was something about the LA Catholic worker that struck you. Can you share more about what you found there, both in contrast to teaching and maybe in contrast to the, the other communities that resonated for you? 
Sure. Yeah. Just to fast forward to that point, I after JVC, I went to grad school, got my divinity degree, and then I did teach uh, for seven years, like you say, social justice in a in a Jesuit high school. And that was a great time. I really enjoyed teaching, but there was something in my prayer where I felt God inviting me to something beyond teaching, and I didn't quite know what it was. And mm. I left my teaching job, and that was when I did this little tour of Catholic worker houses, mostly in California. I did four or five different communities. And one of the first ones I went to was the Los Angeles Catholic worker, which at that time had been around for 40 years or so. At this point, it's been around 50 or more, maybe 55 years. And there was a lot that made sense to me when I was at the LA Catholic worker that connects directly to... 12 years from then, my start in Dandelion House here in Portland. One of the things was on, on the first day, I think, that I, I was there as a summer intern with two other people. And Jeff Dietrich, who is a longtime Catholic worker from L.A. and an author, welcomed us, the three of us. And he held up the weekly schedule for the LA Catholic worker. And I had things like, okay, here are the three days that we go into the soup kitchen uh, called the hippie kitchen and we serve 500 meals or whatever. Here are the days when we do a smaller version of that and go on the street corner and serve oatmeal. Here are the days when we go and protest war at the federal building or the death penalty. This is when we have Bible study. This is when we have happy hour and just relax with each other. This, these are the times for morning prayer, those types of things. So he went over the schedule and then he pointed to it and he said, this whole thing, this is our liturgy of hope. And I think what he meant by that, or at least what I mean by it now, when I use that term liturgy of hope, is it's our way of creating a life and a lifestyle in response to the world. So in response to the wars, the poverty, climate chaos, it's a hopeful way of living in response to all the devastation around us. Mm. And that really has stayed with me. And I would say it's one of my primary reasons for starting Dandelion House is I wanted to create something that would feel like a hopeful way of living in the world. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that bumper sticker. You'll probably know who it is. Be the change you wish to see. It's a very famous person who's... I can't yeah, Gandhi, think of it. I think. Yeah, it's Gandhi, yeah. But just that somehow that schedule embraced who you wanted to be, and I can do it with other people, and maybe I couldn't do it alone. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's a vision, and it's an experiment. It's What I liked about it, too, is that's the way that they did it in L.A., but what I found in The Catholic Worker is that every house does it a little bit differently, and there's a lot of room for exploring and experimenting. The movement is 90 years old, and we face different issues than what Dorothy and Peter faced 90 years ago. And I think there are a lot of 
younger folks in the movement trying to figure out what are the elements of this tradition, this Catholic worker tradition that are core and foundational? What are some expressions of it that maybe need to be let go or simply that I don't feel drawn to and I want to try something else? So as you start Dandelion House, was that a, a year ago or? A year and a half ago. Go. So what are some of the things that you're experimenting with letting go of and taking up? Yeah, so we are definitely continuing the tradition of the House of Hospitality, which is having a residential community into which we invite a small number of folks in need. I spent a lot of years at the San Jose Catholic Worker, and there we focused on women, children in need, and they'd come live with us for three or six or 18 months, however long they needed. And so I'm continuing that here, though. I don't have that same focus on women and children. It's wherever we get. Right now, I've got a young man who is finishing high school and another young man who is trying to finish college. Mm -hmm. uh, so just two people right now. Um, I had a elderly couple move out a few weeks ago. I've had different iterations of people. I had a single mom with two children, but it's always a small number of people entering into our community life for some amount of time. So that's a, a Catholic worker tradition that I've kept. Another one is Dorothy and Peter always envisioned urban houses of hospitality and rural farming communities. I'm in some ways trying to combine both. So we're on half an acre just outside of Portland. It's nowhere uh, big enough to be an actual farm, but I am trying to grow this urban garden so that we can create the kind of uh, resilience we need in terms of uh, growing our own food um, while also being in this urban setting and uh, serving an urban unhoused population. Mm. I think in terms of what are we shedding, we're definitely less Catholic than Dorothy was, mm. which is to say we don't go to daily mass, for example. Many of the people who volunteer with us, who even live with us, are not necessarily Catholic, though we do continue to pray together, the Gospels, uh, the liturgical year, those things still very much inform the way we think. I think for the very first time in my life, and I'm, I'm actually even nervous to say this uh, publicly, but up until now, I've always read the Gospels because I look to Jesus as the person who figured out what it means to be human and and has been my person, my inspiration. For the very first time in my life, I now read the Gospels with this thought that 
Jesus might not have the answer to everything that we're mm. facing right now. I always mm. assume, oh, he's the spiritual guy that figured out how to be human and how to be prophetic and how to speak out against empire and oppression. And so he holds the key for me. And if I can pray enough with the gospels and pray enough with Jesus, then even though he lived in a different time, he holds the key that's going to unlock the mystery of how to be human today in an authentic way. And to a large extent, I still believe that. But I'm also now open to, there might be things he just never encountered and that I need to figure out on my own or I need to look elsewhere for wisdom. Other community members, other communities, other spiritual humans. Mm. That's a pretty big shift, although a subtle one in lots of ways. Was there a moment when you became aware of that or an experience you can attribute to performing that? It just happened in prayer. I was. Mm. We have a regular prayer practice at Dandelion House, and I've had a regular prayer practice for years now. And Justin, in Lexio, uh, reading the daily readings, mm. I just had this moment that I would say a, a moment of God from God where it was almost like God giving me permission to say, hey, you can look at this a little more openly. Mm. Yeah, I was fully present in Jesus, but there are a lot more sources of spiritual wisdom and, and it's okay to, to broaden. Mm. Now, when you say we, there's a married couple who's also part of the community. Is that who's part of the we? And does, does it include the short-term residents? Yeah, so you're right there. Right now, there are three of us who are full-time members of this community and long-term members. So it's me and my friends, Lisa and Julian, who are married to each other. Now, the three of us lived and worked together at the San Jose Catholic Worker also, so we know each other pretty well. And for example, in terms of our morning and evening prayers, our guests, are, our short-term guests are invited to join us in the morning at 7.30. And some have, but none so far have consistently. So we're there every morning and then the guests are invited to join us if that's something that they're interested in. Mm. In San Jose, we had something very similar. And one of my favorite memories is of this little, these two little girls, four and two years old, who would sometimes take us up on coming to pray with us at 7.30 in the morning or whatever it was. And they knew that, that this was a sacred time and they had to be quiet. And so they would come in and they'd be giggling, trying to be quiet because they had to be quiet. And then they'd be climbing on top of us and hanging off our limbs and <laughs> trying to suppress their giggles. And it was the cutest thing. And they, and they would do this fairly regularly. And then sometimes they'd just settle in on 
one or another of our laps and fall back asleep or whatever, but it was very sweet. That's really sweet how kids can break through kind of the somberness of prayer. So when you all pray together, are you doing the Catholic daily readings? I'm I'm so curious how this line between being Catholic and ecumenically Christian and Mm. interfaith and how it bears out in practicality. Yeah, we make it really easy, which is to say we have a designated time for prayer in which we all gather in a designated place. But we don't actually do anything out loud. Mm. And so people are invited to use that time however they like. And I know, for example, that Lisa is often using that time to journal. The three of us all use that time for meditation and centering prayer. I think Julian and I both often engage in Lectio Divina using the daily lectionary readings. So we have a little missalette, we call it, that has all the daily readings in it and both use that. But it's open to to any practice. And then do you all have a mass at the community sometimes? I thought I saw somewhere there was like a monthly mass. Yeah, so when I was in San Jose, we had a monthly mass uh, in the backyard with a rotating cast of friends who were priests who would come and preside. The LA Catholic Worker has a Eucharistic liturgy every Wednesday evening, I believe it is, once a Mm. week. And so that's a common feature of many Catholic Worker houses to gather liturgically in that way. Here in Portland, we tried, we experimented with having a Eucharistic liturgy that was open to the community. And I think it was okay. It was fairly successful, but there are so many people here who are interested in connecting to Dandelion House who are not Catholic, Mm. as opposed to San Jose is a very Catholic city. And I would say 98% of our volunteers, supporters, just their community there were Catholic. And so having a Catholic mass with a Catholic priest just made sense. And everybody felt included and welcome in that. Mm -hmm. Here, it just didn't quite feel the most inclusive thing we could do to foster spiritual community. Mm -hmm. And so what we've opted for is something we're calling Sunday Soup and Contemplation, where on Sunday evenings, members of our extended community are invited to come and join us for what we call contemplation. It begins with a poem, and we have 20 minutes of silence during which many people practice centering prayer. But again, like our morning prayer, you could journal or read or do whatever. And then we have some heart-sharing, a line that spoke to you from the poem or something from the week that you want to share with the group. And it's really been a nice, intimate sharing time, Mm. a vulnerable. And then at 5.30, we have a big pot of soup that we serve. Mm. We make that vegan and gluten-free so it's most accessible to as many people as possible. And so that's been going on 
for just a few months now, but it's been very successful and we do it every week. And so some weeks we just have three or four people that show up. Other weeks we might have 10 or 12 people and it's been a nice touch point in the week mm. and feels the right thing for our community. And then the three of us who are part of the core Catholic worker community very much feel Christian in our life path and so on sundays we'll often go to one or another church although yeah. not necessarily a catholic church actually mm. well one thing that stood out was an article you wrote for the northwest jesuit volunteer corps newsletter after trump's insurrection in 2021 oh, yeah about white supremacy yeah time of reckoning for white christianity and i know in this corner of the world we think a lot about you know racism and how the church has supported that and what it means to be an anti-racist christian so you wrote we acknowledge that the white christian church in america has participated enthusiastically in the imperial and colonial endeavors of white settlers often to its own benefit and enrichment um in the process, we contributed to the attempted erasure of indigenous peoples and cultures, as well as the destruction of local ecosystems. But you also write, isn't there another Jesus? What happened to the Jesus who created a resistance community in opposition to the imperial and religious forms of domination and oppression? I'm curious how you think about American Catholic Church, about whiteness and about the Catholic workers. I think there's an obvious formula of the Catholic workers, anti-racist movement, but I imagine the picture is more complicated than that. Would you be willing to share your thoughts? Yeah, thanks for the question. Absolutely. I think history bears me out here that the Christian church, both Protestant and Catholic in the United States has been racist, continues to be racist and participated in in manifest destiny and colonization all of those things it couldn't have happened without the blessing of the churches and the churches benefited greatly from them i think that was some, some people will abandon christianity because of that mm. And I don't blame them. I think if they see that and they say, I don't want to be a part of that's a very good, legitimate response. I don't do that because I think of that history as a betrayal of Christianity and of Jesus. And I think there is something still that we can hold on to from the Jesus tradition that actually allows us to speak out against that and to resist that and to be against that. Mm. This is a little bit of a side note, but incidentally, the other reason I don't abandon Christianity is because having grown up in Japan, I recognize that institutional betrayals of the core truths and goodness of a religion is not unique to Christianity. It happens in Japan in with Buddhism 
all the time. And for me, it's not a matter of choosing the right religion or the right spiritual tradition. It's a matter of finding whatever is authentic in the one that is yours, that you've inherited. Mm. Uh, but back to your question about the Catholic workers place in this a few years ago, maybe it's 10 years ago or something at this point, some Catholic workers in St. Louis and elsewhere in the Midwest put up this really provocative challenge to Catholic worker communities to say, hey, are we a racist organization? And that was very controversial for a mostly white movement and some people reacted very strongly to it on, on both sides. I think in the years since then, and the racial reckoning that white people in America have gone through over the last 10 years, I think in the Catholic worker movement there, it's much less controversial today to say, yes, of course, the Catholic worker movement as a whole and some communities in particular continue to be racist. Mm. Uh, and, but at the same time, many communities are working intentionally to become anti-racist and they mm. recognize that it's work or mm. we recognize that it's work and that we're not immune from structural racism, from racist thought, from racist actions. I'm curious what the anti-racist work looks like. Some of the way it manifests as a priest in the church, hiring practices, student debt, and who can afford to go to divinity school and who can get what jobs after. But I'm curious, what does the anti-racist developments look like in the Catholic worker community? Yeah. Some of the things that you mentioned for the Episcopal priesthood, I would say, but let me back up and say, this is a, the Catholic worker is a very decentralized organization. Mm -hmm. And so different communities do it very differently. Mm -hmm. And we're at the very beginning of our work as a movement on this, I would say. But some of the things you mentioned have been on my mind at Dandelion House in terms of the traditional Catholic worker structure has been young or young-ish people who have some wealth and privilege, who tend to be white, who can afford to choose voluntary poverty or simplicity, join this radical community for a few years, during which time they're not building wealth or supporting their families or any of those things, but can afford to do that because their families don't need their support or they have the financial security to fall back on of their families. Uh, many, if not most of us, 
college-educated, and maybe after a few years of Catholic school, we go on to grad school and have successful careers. So that's been the traditional model. And it hasn't been accessible to other people because, for example, we might pay $100 a month in a stipend, and people of color may look at that, or people of other economics circumstances and say, we can't afford to do that. At Dandelion House, we're uh, looking at what it would be like to offer still a, a, a stipend, a small stipend compared to a salary job or something, but to pay a larger stipend, if folks come in with student loans, and we did this in San Jose, actually, there was somebody who had a student loan payments that were relatively small, but needed to be paid every month. And the Catholic community paid that while mm -hmm. they were living and working with us. And so different financial models like that, for sure, is one element. I was struck reading the aims and means document. It says, we must be prepared to accept seeming failure with these aims for sacrifice and suffering are part of Christian life. Success as the world determines it is not the final criterion for judgments. The most important thing is the love of Jesus Christ and how to live his truth. Um, I, in the nonprofit world, it's really important. You have a mission statement and hmm. strategic goals, but I'm curious how you think about success and given this statement, Reflecting on your many years in the Catholic worker, what have been the successes and failures and how do you judge them as such? That's a great question. Yeah, I both love and struggle with that framing of success uh, in the Catholic worker, but but mostly I love it. Um, one of the, the chief characteristics of the Catholic worker, I would say, is our philosophy of what we call personalism. And the idea is we are personally called to share the burden of those who are struggling, our neighbors, our friends, our uh, community mates, and that we should not wait for the government or the church as such to care for people in need. So if there are 8,000 unhoused people on the streets of Portland, that we shouldn't be waiting for the government to uh, create 8,000 shelter beds, but we should be looking at the empty bedrooms we have and taking personal responsibility to, to meet this need. I think that's one of the things that's drawn me to the Catholic worker over the years, this sense that, and it connects to the liturgy of hope, where now I just have two hospitality guests. That's not even a drop in the bucket in terms of the need in Portland. But to me, it's a hopeful way to live, to say, yes, there's this huge problem of affordable housing and so many people are left unhoused but i can do something mm. and care for these people 
And that's a hopeful response because I'm not giving up in despair. I'm、mm-hmm. doing this small thing. And over the years, as we've done that, as I've done that, so I've been part of the Catholic Worker off and on for 12 years now, and created community with many people, dozens of people who have come to us for short term. In relatively short term hospitality. The relationships I've built through that over the years and that we've built with each other have been a success.、Mm-hmm. There are people from San Jose, from LA, from other Catholic workers I've been at who I continue to be in touch with. And my life. Has been enriched because they've been a part of it. And I think they would say their lives have been enriched because I've been a part of it. And what we commit to at the Catholic Worker really is long term relationship through the ups and downs of their life. That to me is a measure of success. And there are people who leave the Catholic Worker and sometimes they'll end up back on the streets, for example. Their story's not over yet. And we continue、mm-hmm. to be in relationship with them. And maybe they come back to the house to have meals with us or to do laundry, or we continue to help them with their immigration paperwork or getting their medical benefits or, or whatever their needs are, school supplies for their kids. It's not like the relationship ends once they leave here. And that's been one of the strongest. Senses of success that I've had is the strength of those relationships. Sticking with the aims and means document for a moment, it lists four practices violence, works of mercy, manual labor, and voluntary poverty as key to the communities. I'd love to hear a little bit about each. First, nonviolence. I was really struck reading about your story of getting arrested in mass.、Mm. I'm wondering if you could share with the Listeners, how that connects to the Catholic worker values. Before I talk about that particular arrest, let me share a story from the LA Catholic worker again.、Mm-hmm. When I was discerning whether to join this crazy lefty Catholic worker movement or not, I、uh, was at the LA Catholic worker, and one afternoon we were. Protesting the Iraq and Afghanistan wars around the federal building. And we did this maybe once a week or so, and we would spend an hour holding up our signs and walking in silence slowly around the federal building. And this is in downtown LA. So you can imagine there's skyscrapers around me and cars whizzing by. And I had this moment when. I was praying. I had my rosary with me, walking around in silence, praying for peace, and looking up and imagining all the people working in these downtown buildings and all the people driving past in their cars. And how, of course, if you stopped and asked them, they would know that we were at war. They might even be against it. But in that moment, They probably weren't thinking about the fact that we were at war. And I don't say this in judgment. I know 
from when I was a high school teacher, even when I was teaching war and peace, I wasn't always thinking about the actual wars we were in that moment because what I was thinking about were my lesson plans and grading and kind of the daily tasks that occupy us. And in that context, I thought it's a really good thing that there's this group of people who call themselves the Catholic worker, who work it into their work calendars, their work schedules, to at least remember mm. that we're at war. Because whether you were for or against our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, it seemed really important to me that if people were being killed in our name, the least we could do is at least remember that it was happening. Mm. And apart from people who had family members serving in the armed forces, who they remembered every day that this was happening because they were worried about their family members. Apart from that particular group of people, the Catholic workers were the only people that I had met up until that point who made it their business to at least remember. Mm. And that was one of the, the draws I had to the Catholic worker. And, and I, I remember specifically going to mass later that week. And as happens at every mass, the, the priest held up the host, and then held up the chalice with the words, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And I thought, my God, if we are called to remember Jesus in this bread that is broken and in this wine that's poured out, how much more are we called to remember him in people whose actual bodies are broken and whose actual blood is spilt? Mm -hmm. So that was when I decided to join the Catholic Worker for real. Well, that's a long prelude to your actual question. The arrest was at Santa Clara University, which is down the street from the San Jose Catholic Worker. I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that I personally and we at the Catholic Worker had an excellent relationship with Santa Clara University. It's a Jesuit Catholic university. My graduate degree uh, is from there. I have a lot of friends who work there. Their campus ministry would take up collections for the Catholic worker four times a year. Uh, their service center would send us students to volunteer. Uh, I taught a uh, experiential learning and social justice course uh, one quarter there. I say all of these things so folks get a sense of the... And I would go to mass there regularly. And so there was really a strong relationship between the university and the Catholic worker. And I think that's important to note because the dispute we had was around the ROTC program, what's called Reserve Officer Training Corps. Yeah, ROTC, yeah. Yeah, and I think of it more as a family dispute. We're all, the Catholic worker and Santa Clara University and the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, are all about the Gospels. We're all about Jesus. And we had this disagreement, a strong disagreement, about 
military training and, and the Catholic worker position and our position, my position personally, is that any institution that purports to follow Jesus should not be training officers to fight and kill in imperial American wars. And so we had a regular presence of protesting the ROTC program on campus. I got to know the commanding officer. We were part of a panel discussion, me, the commanding officer, and then a theologian from the Jesuit School of Theology talking about the just war theory. I was talking about nonviolence and the Razi commander was talking about Razi. And, and so one day when we were protesting outside the mission church, I'm not quite sure what happened then and what was different that day than any other day uh, that we, our practice was to hold up our signs quoting Isaiah, you shall study war no more. We were talking to students, uh, religious studies professors who saw us out there would send their classes out to us to talk to us. And we were having a good conversation with the students. The campus police then called the city of Santa Clara police. And as we were wrapping up to go to mass, which was our practice, we went right before noon mass, 30 minutes, we'd hold our signs and we'd wrap up our signs. And then we were all Catholic. We would go to mass. Uh, but they followed me into the mission church and arrested me in the back of the church. I'm thinking about works of mercy. I was struck listening to you. I hear that you have residents. I feel like the popular image of the Catholic workers is a soup kitchen feeding large amounts of people in the slums of yeah. New York in the 1930s. Um, sure. uh, I, for Dandelion House, does the works of mercy extend beyond hosting sure yeah so you're right we have the hospitality guests that we host uh, and sheltering those without shelter is a work of mercy on fridays we also offer a hot meal to between 100 and 150 folks on the streets of portland yeah. so there's a bridge about a 15 minute drive from here and so what we do is on thursday afternoon so actually a little bit later Today, me and some volunteers will cook. We're cooking a Spanish chicken and rice, arroz con pollo today. And we'll pre prep that, put it in the slow cooker tonight, cook it overnight, and then we'll take it out under the bridge tomorrow and do that. So that is also part of our works of mercy. Our garden program is part of that. As we grow our garden, we're trying to we think of it both as a work of mercy in terms of then being able to take fresh vegetables to use to cook meals for that Friday meal program, but also in gardening in such a way as to build up the soil and sequester carbon, even on our small half acre lot, that that is a work of mercy for the earth. Mm. Also, I'm aware that 
clergy so often talk about compassion fatigue, the sort of stress that can build up when you're immersed in lives of people with trauma and maybe in situations that are emotionally or physically dangerous. I can only imagine that that risk would be maybe even higher among Catholic workers. Um, there's so much talk in the therapeutic world, like self-care and boundaries and how much of that is seeped into Catholic worker thinking, or maybe you all have resisted that in some ways. Yeah, that's a great question. Burnout is a real thing, right? And mm. I've known many Catholic workers who have burnt out, who are no longer doing this, and they have beautiful hearts and intentions and desires. And then many of them have figured out how to be of service outside the Catholic worker, but mm. their Catholic worker experience was ultimately in some ways negative because it led to burnout, despite the positive relationships they may have had. And so I'm really aware of trying to set this up in a way that feels sustainable for the long run. And the key for me, and I learned this from my mentor, Larry, at the Redwood City Catholic Worker. He's been there for 50 years. The key for me has been to not let the needs of the world define our work, but to let our capacity define mm. our work. Mm. Because if we let the needs define our work, then we'll be working around the clock and we still won't meet all the needs. Mm. And so really recognizing capacity. Uh, and mostly I mean that in a personal sense, time, energy, those kinds of things, and doing what we can within our capacities has been really important to me. Mm. I will say that I've also encountered other Catholic worker communities that have a different philosophy where they really try not to say no very mm. often. And there's something beautiful about that, but I couldn't do it. And I've also seen people either burn out or stay and be jaded and cynical. And I would mm. rather stay and be happy and fulfilled. Mm. Mm. And thinking about voluntary poverty, my understanding that undergirding that is a real value around freedom and that the essence behind it is how do I live a life free both inwardly and outwardly from exploitative systems? I'd be curious what your experience has been like uh, as a worker embracing voluntary poverty. Yeah, I think it's absolutely about freedom. I, I prefer the term voluntary simplicity. Mm. I think poverty implies a degree of deprivation that is not part of my life. Mm. All of my basic needs are met uh, and more. And many people on the streets would, who, who are actually poor, would love to live the way I do. And so in that way, it's, it's really not poverty. But to live simply and to not seek extravagance or anything beyond kind of the, the basics that we provide ourselves in community 
has liberated me. It's really interesting. I've been a Catholic worker off and on, like I said, over 12 years. Seven of those years, I was full-time Catholic worker. Five of those years, I was doing some other things because of personal circumstances. And what's interesting to me is during those five years when I was making a professional salary, doing whatever, it was during those years that I was more concerned about whether I was making enough money or not, Mm. and if I could pay all the bills or not. And what the Catholic worker does, and it's a real privilege I recognize for us, is it somewhat removes us from the capitalist craziness that the rest of us are forced to live in so much of the time. And obviously we don't, we're not entirely removed from it. We're dependent on it in a lot of different ways, but we're removed enough that it gives us the spaciousness and openness and freedom to say, wow, now that our basic needs are met, we have each other, meaning the community for financial, spiritual, emotional support. We don't have to go work for somebody else. We're our own bosses. What can we do with our lives? Mm. And it's this openness of, wow, we can really be who God created us to be in the world. Mm. And, And that's the real beauty and draw for me of this lifestyle is that I don't have to do what some other boss tells me to do. I can really discern what does it mean to be the most human I can be today in response Mm -hmm. to the needs of the world. And that is a freedom that I've only ever experienced in the Catholic worker. Mm -hmm. And how does it look like concretely? And my guess is there are 200 communities and they each do it differently. You do fundraising and receive gifts and then a certain amount of that goes toward the upkeep of the house and then each person gets $100 a month. Is that? Yeah, yeah. part of uh, $100 a month was in San Jose. Part of what we were discussing earlier around wanting to increase that and give other people who might want to save a little or provide a little bit for somebody else in their family or whatever. But the general idea is the same, which is as a house, we collectively raise money for the operation of the house. And the way we do that is by sending donors newsletters and asking them to give out of their, out of what they have. And then Most of that goes to the groceries that we buy for this meal for 120 people that I'm cooking tonight or the utilities for the house and those kinds of things. And then we also provide the stipend. The amount in the stipend, I think, is less important than the philosophy of we are a community and we're going to take care of each other. For example, if we're we're all on, on the state Medicaid health plan, it's called Oregon health plan. 
but I need to get new glasses. And guess what? OHP <laughs> doesn't cover new glasses. Uh, and so as needs arise, we talk about it and take care of each other. And yeah. so we don't need to, I don't need to earn a salary, save some of that for a rainy day fund so that I can buy these glasses as the need arises, the community will provide. I'm curious just about formation. I think of the analogy with monastic communities, how there's some people who come for a weekend retreat and then there are others who are young and come for a year. And then there are people who take novice vows and then people mm -hmm. who make lifetime professions. Is there something similar in the Catholic worker? Is there a moment when you said, not just internally, but externally, okay, I'm, this is it for me. Yeah, that's a good question. There's not anything nearly as structured and formal as religious life or monastic life. Everybody does it differently. I personally had those three months or four months when I was touring different Catholic worker houses, when I was an intern at the LA Catholic worker. And then after that, I committed to one year at the Redwood City Catholic worker. But that was it. I was just committing to one year. After that, I left for a little bit and then came back and joined the San Jose Catholic Worker. I would say when I joined the San Jose Catholic Worker, that was when I said internally and externally, okay, this is me indefinitely. That's not to say I might not change my mind in 10 years, but this is me right now mm. and for the foreseeable future. Um, and I, I probably would have stayed in San Jose uh, forever, uh, but I fell in love and there were personal circumstances that when I was talking to my uh, then partner that got me to move up to Oregon. And so mm. for a while, I was not a Catholic worker because of that, but I always wanted to come back. So from that moment, mm. I, I was a Catholic worker and I intend to be in one form or another for the rest of my life. Mm. Well, I'm curious what counsel you'd have for folks who are at the very beginning stages of discerning a call to create a house of hospitality. It sounds like you lived in numerous communities before you even attempted to start ones. What advice do you have for people who may not be as immersed in the culture? I think you just want to be really clear what your passions are and mm. do what you love. Because that's the mm. only thing that will, that you can maintain. Do what you love versus what you think you should do because you're a Catholic worker. Mm. So I do this food thing on Fridays because I love to cook. If you don't love to cook, then don't be a soup kitchen type Catholic worker. Do something else. There's so many ways to meet the needs of the world. And if you're going to continue and be successful, it's got to be something you just naturally enjoy doing. Mm. That'd be my first piece of advice. And then my second piece of advice would be just to do it. Once you start doing something that's of service, 
direct service to people. One, it, it's it's a great way to start forming relationships with folks and the margins and to give structure to your day and week. But also, that's how funders and supporters and individuals see that and they say, oh, we'll support that. I'm curious about that between just do something and the wisdom of planning ahead. I'm wondering if there are ever moments when you're like, man, I wish I'd spent more time planning or your experience may be just do it. Yeah, I did have a few potential funders tell me, yeah, this sounds great. We'll fund it when you have a budget. I've never had a budget. And yeah, I've just done it. Mm. And, and people have gathered around the doing of it. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. And the, the last question that comes to mind for me, I wonder your parents, when you left home to come to the US, I imagine this wasn't the future they imagined for you. How has honoring this vocation impacted your relationship with your family? Yeah, that's been a long journey and can be a whole episode in itself almost. But you're certainly right. When I was a young person and went down this path, I faced a lot of strong opposition, particularly from my mother. And looking back, I really appreciate that opposition because, and I knew it then too, but I know it even more so now that she absolutely was coming from a place of love for me mm. and wanting me to have the best life possible and worried about my financial stability and viability uh, as an adult if I pursued the various kinds of things I was pursuing. And of course, as a parent, she would worry about that. So I appreciate that. But as we were living through it and we were having these difficult conversations, yeah, it was really hard not having that approval. I'm really close to my family of origin and I wanted that approval and I didn't have it for a long time. I think what's happened over the years is my mother in particular has seen and recognized how happy mm -hmm. I am and how fulfilled I am and that, that this is just what I want to do. She probably also realizes that there's nothing she can do about it. <laughs> but what's been wonderful is now my mother volunteers regularly at the Orange County Catholic Worker in wow. California where she lives. I, mean, I couldn't believe it when she came to visit me in San Jose. I remember this one day we got... 15 boxes of pizzas or something donated randomly. And so I said, all right, mom, we're going to go distribute these. And she hops into the truck with me and we go to an encampment down the street. And I never thought I would see my mother in her like very fashionable clothes, walking ahead of me, like knocking on tents in an encampment, offering pizza. Mm -hmm. That's what she was doing. And then my sister and my brother, my two siblings, are two of the biggest um, financial supporters of, of mm. what we do. So now it's a family affair and I'm, I'm grateful to mm. them. That's a beautiful place to, to end it. I'll uh, 
I'd like to close with a prayer too. I have one here, unless you'd like to say one that's stirred since we started. No, I'm happy to have you pray for us. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Merciful God, you called your servant Dorothy Day to show us the face of Jesus and the poor and forsaken. By constant practice of the works of mercy, she embraced poverty and witnessed steadfastly to justice and peace. Count her among your saints and lead us all to become friends of the poor ones of the earth and to recognize you in them. We ask this through your son, Jesus Christ, bringer of good news to the poor. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Fumi. Such a delight to meet you. Thanks, Duncan. Go to DuncanHilton.net to find a full archive of podcasts and my weekly newsletter. You can also find links there to daily prayer and meditation groups. This podcast is not supported by grants or salary, but by listeners like you. You can also find a link at DuncanHilton.net to make a donation. Questions, comments, and suggestions for guests can be emailed to Duncan at DuncanHilton.net.